It's November 26, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lom. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First, we'll cover some local science and tech stories. Then we'll learn about next week's Hawaii Business Roundtable event. Mela James is here from the Hawaii Venture Capital Association to tell us about the growing Hawaii's innovation economy panel coming up next week. That's right. Finally, we've invited Michael Menchaka and Paul Ryan to tell us about massively open online courses, yes, MOOCs, and how the University of Hawaii is making education more accessible. We'd, of course, love your questions and thoughts. Ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. The international astronomy community was energized last week when researchers announced the discovery of an unusual source of light in a galaxy 90 light years away. Given its unusual properties, the leading theory of the source of the light is that it may be a supermassive black hole that was ejected from its home galaxy. The discovery of the object spotted in the constellation Big Dipper was derived from analysis of decades of observations from many uh, observatories, including the W.M. Keck Observatory on Mauna Kea and the Pan-STARRS-1 telescope on Haleakala. Many astronomers believe the object is the result of the collision of two black holes, resulting in the ejection into deep space. But a secondary scenario involves the catastrophic self-destruction of a single massive star that somehow experienced an unprecedented amount of violent eruptions prior to going supernova. Lead astronomer Michael Koss, who was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Hawaii's Institute for Astronomy, said in a statement, With the data we have in hand, we can't yet distinguish between these two scenarios. One exciting discovery is that the brightness hasn't changed too much in ultraviolet light for a decade, which is not something that we would see in a young supernova remnant. The findings, which focus on the significant beginning of the object in the past six months, were re uh, reported in last week's notices of the Royal Astronom- Astronomical Society that brightening, should it continue, would bolster the ejected black hole hypothesis. This, uh, that hypothesis, <laughs> hypothesis was fueled a long-time search for what is called Albert Einstein's black hole object, an orphan black hole that Einstein predicted would serve as evidence for his uh, general theory of relativity. Now, this is uh, interesting because what they're doing is uh, also having to study the sort of the gases that are around this supposed black hole. Now, the first thing that I thought (laughs) was if this black hole was actually ejected from a collision, how can they see it? So I guess it it sort of left that ejection with a bunch of uh, luminous gas around it. And if this gas is is changing in its uh, composition, then that would imply that it might be the star that's um, actually kind of going through its... uh, uh, sort of eventual destruction. Right, right? and the timing of the story, of course, a lot of people were tying to the film Interstellar, which which does involve mysterious celestial bodies and cosmic forces in the black holes, so it was kind of fun to see that. Um, It's uh, in the dwarf galaxy Markarian 177. Again, it's in the the Big Dipper, not something that a home astronomer will be able to see, but, uh, you know, these are definitely one of the more interesting things uh, about space, and to use the various observatories in Hawaii, we'd definitely like to see that. The Puna lava flow has slowed in recent weeks, but has nevertheless prompted changes that prepared for the possibility that the Pahoe community would be split in half. Earlier this month, the State Department of Education transferred hundreds of Pahoa High School students to Keao High School. In order to ease this mid-year transition, students at the University Lab School on Oahu enlisted technology to help the displaced students get to know their new campus. The students were part of the lab school's Moonshot Academy program, supported in part with Google's educational tools. 
A number of lab students uh, flew to the Big Island to work with Keao High School students to build a multimedia map of the campus. It included YouTube videos, uh, introductions to buildings, 360-degree panoramic photospheres of individual classrooms and room maps with teacher assignments. Students were also outfitted with Google Glass to create first-person tours of the buildings and signed up for Google Coordinate, which allows students to geolocate each other on campus. When the Pahoa High School students arrived at their new school for their first tour, they were loaned tablet computers to help them navigate the campus. Among the extras included in the Lava Relief Google Mapping Project was a special message from the crew of the Hokulea sent from the sailing vessel from off the coast of New Zealand. Google Education Evangelist Brendan Brennan told Bite Marks Cafe, This project is the reason why I became a teacher. It's the perfect example of what kids can do to enact real and meaningful change in their community when they are empowered with technology that can not only solve the problem, but can connect them to each other and the world. Well, you know, the, we've, of course, had Brendan uh, on the show, and he is a definitely an evangelist for technology and, and Google products in general. Yeah, he, he's uh, live-streamed our radio show with Google Glass on his head. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> impressive. And, and for him to have the opportunity for, uh, for the kids out at Pahoa to actually use this technology to maybe help familiarize them with a new environment that they're going into, I think you know, that's kind of a cool thing, a cool use of the technology. Yeah, apparently this was sparked from a recent event called the Hawaii Geo Teachers Institute, and they started thinking like this. Of course, there's a history with Google. Um, Google is working with the Polynesian Voyaging Society, mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. and of course they was, there was a grant last year to get Chromebooks deployed to schools in the Puna District, so a long history there. Mm, good stuff. Well, next up, uh, speaking of lava, a new research paper published this month attempts to explain why why volcanoes are erupting in Hawaii, Yellowstone Park, or Bermuda, far from the active edges of tectonic plates, while the physics below volcanoes along the ring of fire seem intuitive, explanations for Hawaii's lava flows are less obvious. The paper published in the journal Nature Communications proposes the existence of something called dark magmas, suggesting that pockets of molten rock trapped near the Earth's, Earth's mantle periodically warms under pressure and erupts separate from tectonic effects. Of course, dark matter is a term used by astronomers to explain forces that could not be accounted for in the celestial bodies that we could observe. Dark magmas, in this theory, are believed to be left over from the ultra-hot formative stages of Earth's formation. The magma sits well above and apart most other molten rock deposits, but the researchers theorize that they draw heat from the planetary core and even undergo an atomic-scale change to get charged up and erupt. As part of the research, the authors conducted an experiment in which they pressed a piece of glass between two diamonds to demonstrate changes in atomic structure they believe could apply to dark magmas. The paper also notes that shifts in the planet's magnetic field could be affected by the location and density of the Earth's mantle and the movements of molten rock. Dark magmas would mean significant variation in the energy and heat moving through the planet's core mantle boundary. Now, it's interesting to think that, you know, I guess maybe a long time ago we used to think about the magma coming up from the center of the earth and going through like a pinhole and, and Straight actually up through Hawaii. pushing through, you know, through the earth's crust. But this theory says that there is this uh, dark magma that might be actually cool. Uh, compared to hot lava. Mm. And somehow the pressure uh, ignites it. 
Right. And that's and why, you know, they're talking about this glass between two diamonds and is there some atomic uh, uh, change in the structure? Is this happening to dark matter? Right. And I kind of like that like dark matter is trying to explain something that's being observed. You know, basically, they're not seeing the transference or the, the uh, em- em- eminence of heat that they were expecting to see, given the current understanding of the Earth's crust and mm-hmm. all of these things. So they're saying, well, there, there must be a substance, perhaps like this compressed silicate, this sort of glass that uh, is holding that heat back. And so they did an actual laboratory experiment to sort of demonstrate how this silicate material has a change in its properties and that change can directly change how much heat can get through mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a very wide-ranging theory about how to explain it. And I still love that there are still questions, even though you remember in maybe elementary school seeing these pictures of how volcanoes work, that we still are trying to figure those out. Yeah, I, I think it uh, it is pretty fascinating. Well, finally, a couple of quick stories we wanted to share with you. Next week, the University of Hawaii's Office of Technology Transfer and Economic Development will have a new leader. Local venture capitalist and entrepreneur Bill Richardson has been named interim director effective Monday. Richardson will lead OTED and work closely with the new Accelerate UH program to help cohorts fully exploit their UH-owned technologies. Richardson founded and built a series of venture funds that invested in 17 Hawaii-based companies, including two that went public. Next Sunday brings a special preview event for the first-ever HokuCon. It's a new sci-fi convention coming to Honolulu next year. Now, HokuCon is a spin-off of the very successful KawaiiCon, which celebrates Japanese anime and comics. Although HokuCon will take place in July of next year, Sunday's preview day, that's uh, next Sunday, not this coming Sunday, will give more than a taste of what's to come. You can find more information at HokuCon, and that's K with a K, dot com. Okay, well, bloggers, developers, and entrepreneurs are invited to help build the program for WordCamp Maui coming up in February. Organizers are looking for speaker and session suggestions. WordCamps are conferences covering everything related to WordPress, the free and open source software that powers more than 75 million sites on the web. And, of course, for more information, you can go to... 2015.maui.wordcamp.org. And, of course, we will have the link for you in uh, our show notes at the website, bitemarkscafe.org. And now joining us is Melly James from the Hawaii Venture Capital Association to tell us about the upcoming Growing Hawaii's Innovation Economy panel. And, of course, welcome to the show, Melly. Welcome back. Hi, thanks for thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you're regular here. I think like every three weeks or something, we <laughs> we have you on because you guys are doing quite a bit. Whether it's Blue Startups or Hawaii Venture Capital Association, it's pretty cool. Yes. So tell us about this panel that you have planned. Okay, so it's on Thursday, December fourth, and we'll be hosting it at at Proto Hub, which is in Kakaako at four five eight Kiave Street, mm-hmm. and it's called uh, Growing Hawaii's Innovation Economy, and uh, this is an HVCA event. Uh, in conjunction with the Hawaii Business Roundtable and the High Growth Initiative. Uh, What's really exciting about the event, um, not only are we having uh, some speakers from the Hawaii Business Roundtable talk about their innovation assets report, which um, is going to be released shortly, but they'll be talking about it. Um, We'll also be having a professor, Professor Enrico Moretti, who wrote a book called The New Geography of Jobs um, and talking about the importance... uh, and the role of the innovation sector in generating economic growth and new jobs. Um, so what what I'm really excited about is kind of finally uh, 
hearing uh, the business community, HBR, mm-hmm. talking about supporting and embracing the innovation sector here in Hawaii. Um, and ultimately what that means is it's the business community engaging with the innovation community and seeing what we can really, what we can really do here in Hawaii. Now, you said something about uh, um, innovation assets. Uh, give us a sense of what they might have identified as some of the innovation assets. Or should I just wait for the panel? You've got to wait for the panel. Oh, <laughs> I'm not expelling anything. Uh, but basically, it identifies Hawaii's current innovation assets and highlights the importance of growing the research and innovation sector here um, and why. And um, for, 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 from our stance, it's about creating jobs, not only high-wage jobs, you know, mid-wage jobs, low-wage jobs. It's not just about high. Mm-hmm. It's about having headquarters here, company headquarters here. So, you, so you, you know, someone just graduated from college can come in at the ground level and grow with the company versus a lot of times here, there might be some big corporations here, but it's a satellite office in Hawaii. How much can you grow in a satellite office? You've got maybe two positions. Um, so we also have a panel Sure, sure. Um, and that's actually the third piece of the event, which I'm excited about. And it's also an audience discussion. So uh, Greg Fujimoto, who's the president for Oceanic Time Warner Cable, Rich Wacker, president and CEO of American Savings Bank, Tina Fitch, uh, who was the CEO and co-founder of Switchfly, and she's on Maui. She's also starting a new company right now. Uh, Dan Luke, who's the CEO of Ikezo, and Bubs Monsef, who's the He's a, an entrepreneur from Hawaii who just had an exit on the mainland, creativemarket.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, I just saw a post uh, by Darius on Facebook kind of talking about the difficulty in finding really good broadband speeds. To, to, <laughs> so to have him on a table at a panel with an Oceanic Time Warner uh, representative could make for an interesting conversation. It's very interesting. I was I read that as well about the difference in price between getting the same amount of capacity on Waimea versus San Francisco was <laughs> I. I I think it was like a factor of 10 at least. At I mean, least. Yeah, several more yeah. digits. Now, um, when you talk about the innovation economy, education is part of that sort of pipeline basically into mm-hmm. uh, that economy. And we're going to be talking about multi- uh, massively online, open online courses uh, after the break. Um, but we also talked about the new leader over at uh, the uh, OTED. At OTED at UH, the mm-hmm. Accelerate UH program. We did a show on that as well. Um, what aspect uh, of the of of uh, this economy, do you think, or do you look forward to bringing up at the at the panel? Because I think a lot of people are looking to the university as being a key part of that conversation as well. Yeah, I think education is obviously a huge piece, and especially you know what they're they're doing at Accelerate UH and commercializing the IP coming out of out of the school. Um, you know, I, we're we've been working hard for the past couple of years and really engaging the students not only you know when they're in the computer science programs or in the business school to start to engage with each other and, and create. Um, I think I think um, one of the main focuses, though, of the event is really looking at what's working, what's not working, and what we can do to make things better. Um, especially with the business community coming to the coming to the table, mm-hmm. and and it's not about looking for financial or money. It's not like oh, can you you know these corporations sponsor us more? It's about being uh, beta customers. It's about being strategic partners. It's about helping out with you know the legislature with broadband. Those kinds of things that. Um, we, we really do need to embrace more. We're seeing that on the mainland. So many of these companies are embracing the innovation sector and really opening doors um, that will really help us to go a long way here in so Hawaii. You mentioned the uh, the Hawaii Business Roundtable, HBR. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it that really com- comprises this organization? Is it sort of the established companies that are that sort of make up Hawaii's corporate uh, corporate community? Yeah, there are a lot of like the CEOs of some of the major companies here in Hawaii. 
um, and it's a great representation of of the business sector here. And and, and was it was it um, they who contributed to this report that's coming out? Yes. And I, I'm I'm kind of curious because usually you would think of some of the corporations are fairly fairly sort of risk averse, right? I mean they're not that keen on a lot of changes within their you know their their operating environment so to incorporate sort of this this idea of innovation i'm i'm kind of curious to see how they see it working in their already existing sort of traditional uh corporate cultures yeah i think if you look at it it's um it's about of course bringing more people here allowing for more jobs. I mean, especially if you even look from an AS, American Savings Bank perspective, it's more people opening bank accounts here in Hawaii, mm-hmm. right? Um, and people making more money, meaning there's more money coming through the bank. Um, but also just looking at innovation, you'll see is in every company, even old school companies like insurance companies. They're learning to have to innovate because there are so many changes happening in the world today that they're not going to suddenly have an entire innovation department at an insurance company, but maybe it's a hey, reaching out to, you know, to Blue Startups or Accelerate UH or places like that saying, this is a problem we're trying to solve. Can one of your teams solve it? Mm-hmm. Or can you guys mm-hmm. find a team that can help us solve this problem? There's so many different ways that the business community can engage that's not, again, financial. So I, I know when people initially hear, oh, we're looking for sponsorship, people kind of shut, shut right, their right. ears. Mm-hmm. It's about engagement in so many different ways, and that's what we're going to be talking about on Thursday. And there are examples of local companies, even large established companies, trying to find a way to foster innovation within their organizations. Bert was involved with one, and I've, I know of a few others. So I do like that we're looking at an intersection between the Hawaii Business Roundtable, which is the Established and well, you know, well uh, regarded companies and the Hawaii Venture Capital Association, which might be more about new ideas, innovation, disruption, perhaps. And I think that it's not a it's not a threat. I think good things can come of that. Yeah. So, Melly, uh, where and when is this event? And more inf- more importantly, where can they go for more information? Yes. Yeah, so you can go to hvca.org uh, for or backslash events, or just go to hvca.org and you'll you'll find our event section. And this will be at four five. 458 Kiave Street, which is in Kaka'ako, at ProtoHub. We start at 5 o'clock. Programming will start at 5.15, go till about 7, and then we'll have a networking event afterwards. Okay, and that's next week, Thursday, right? Thursday, December 4th. 4th. Yes. Sounds Fantastic. good. Thanks, Mele, for joining us. Thanks, Bert. Thanks, Ryan. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Mike Menchaka and Paul Ryan and talk about massively open online courses. What is driving the use of MOOCs and what lies ahead for the university? Of course, we'd love your thoughts, questions as part of the conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're live here in the studio. You can also tweet us at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks. Cafe. I'm Betty White, head of school at Sacred Hearts Academy. We have been an underwriter of Hawaii Public Radio for several years. We always ask people where they hear about Sacred Hearts. A lot of our parents are riding long distances in cars. Our teachers are quite involved in some of the programming, and I personally find it very rewarding. Hawaii Public Radio, celebrating partnership, building community. This week on Applause in a Small Room, local buskers Jonathan, Brian, Chaz, and Jesse, also known as Streetlight Cadence, come in from the streets of Honolulu to perform for a live audience. That's Streetlight Cadence on Applause in a Small Room, this Sunday at 4 on HPR2. Sometimes I miss the obvious. Sometimes I might be hard to trust. 
Sometimes you might be surprised that I am thinking of you. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Mike Menchaka and Paul Ryan. Mike specializes in online learning especially analyzing optimal tools and strategies in distributed environments. He also researches issues of social justice and technology integration into teaching and learning. Paul, meanwhile, is the technology lead for the College of Education at the University of Hawaii. And, of course, what goes into developing a MOOC? And that is a burning question that I need to have answered. Of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Mike and Paul, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Bert. It's great to be here. Mike, I'm uh, going to start with you and, and uh, have you kind of give us a uh, quick elevator explanation <laughs> about what a massively online, massively open online course is. Well, in a nutshell, the real important part of it is that it's open, meaning that we're providing content for free in some manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is really what's behind the whole movement. There's a lot of different uh, possibilities out there. You see a lot of flavors of MOOCs, but I think the real idea that's driving it is how can we bring quality education to the largest amount of people that we can for free? And that, in, in a nutshell, is what we're trying to do. Well, of course, I love the acronym MOOC, and it reminds me, of course, of the term uh, MPORG, right? The massively multiplayer online role-playing game. Correct. Um, is there any shared lineage between these two concepts, or it's just the, the wonder of the alphabet that makes them seem like they're related to each other? I think that purposely, when people were thinking about what to put an acronym, they kind of put it together, because, you know, that it's a like mind as of those large environments of going in and, and having fun and learning can be fun. But I think other than that, you know, it's partly coincidence as well. I like it. Now, the idea of a, a massively open, and of course you had uh, pointed out the fact that it's it's free, and and given the fact that the University of Hawaii is, is looking for new sources of revenue, how does a free delivery of a course really add to sort of the, the revenue stream? That's an excellent question. And one of the things that we're really doing with this particular class is that we're combining the credit students with the non-credit students. Mm-hmm. So students can also take this class and pay for it and get the three credits in our program uh, in the Department of Learning Design and Technology. So that is an option for them. Um, as well. So we can do that as part of our revenue stream. But in addition to that, it gives people an introduction into the things that we can offer at UH and particularly in our department. So maybe they take the open course, they're hooked, they like it, and they decide to go into our certificate program, our master's program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we can use it as a hook. And of course, also, it's not a bad thing to get notoriety to your department, to your university, and that's also uh, part of part of the goal. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, last year we uh, spoke with uh, HPU and I think Shamanad about their MOOC experiences and exercises, but I think that it's a slightly different conversation. We're talking about a public university, which has a different kind of charter, a mission. Um, many times in some of our most uh, successful shows at Mike Marks Cafe do talk about education, technology and education, the disruption of the education model, the changing and the reconfiguration of the classroom. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, add some uh, context because there's a lot of people talking 
talking about things like Stanford, putting all of its courses online. You can watch any Stanford class. You can take the same class that someone pays tens of thousands of dollars to to attend. The only difference is you don't get the piece of paper at the end. Mm-hmm. But if it's the education that matters, then why not do that? Um, there's uh, Coursera. There's Udemy. There's all these online tools where people say, hey, you know, lynda.com, even whole businesses talking about learning skills. So with that big ecosystem out there from commercial to to just for the, the principle of it, where does a public university fit it with all these other options that are out there? Well, I think for large institutions, it's really important to give back to the community. Um, they're, we're, we're partially state-funded at uh, the University of Hawaii, so we uh, want to give back and not just uh, take students who have paid to be in there and give the content to them, but also to open it up to the larger community. Our LTech department puts a lot of work into the courses that they teach, and we just want to share that with a, a broader community and, and teach more people. Well, I do want to talk about the technology tools, but uh, I have a, a daughter. She's going to be going to college soon, and I'm already dreading those bills. But part of me can see some, someone maybe not having an understanding of it and having an objection, saying, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. My daughter's paying $17,000 a semester to be here, and yet there's a 100 other students sitting behind right, their right. computers all around the world getting it for free. How, am I being cheated in some way? I don't think so. So that's that's something the community at large is still working through. Like, how do we separate these two models, the, the credit and non-credit? Credit, as Mike said. Um, so for the upcoming course that we're going to teach in the spring, we, we're trying to split the two groups a little bit and maybe uh, pull back on the amount of effort involved for the non-credit students. And so they are going to get more of an introduction to the course, but uh, less of less work involved that the four-credit students are putting into it since they're investing a lot more time and money into it. So we're still exposing a broader, uh, a broader group of people to the, the content, but the the pay students are still getting more than... They should be the priority mm-hmm. if you have a question or you need help or something. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Feedback, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. You know, Mike, you had mentioned that the course can act as a hook to sort of bring people in. And in order for it to be a hook, I think there's uh, there's some special design considerations that go into the development of, of a MOOC. And, and maybe, uh, maybe Mike and, and Paul, you guys can talk a little bit about what actually is special about this MOOC? Because I teach uh, an online class over at Winward Community College, and there's nothing special about it. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, I'm wh- sure it's why, why just would, fine, Bert. Why would I mean? What is it that hooks people into your MOOC, and 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 what is it that went into the development? That makes it sort of enticing. That's a great question. I think I'll I'll do part one and then I'll, okay. I'll turn it over to Paul. Um, when we got together thinking about the design of this course, we purposely wanted to build something that had lots of possibility for student feedback. So a couple of the really, uh, I think, different things that we have in our particular MOOC is that each one of the modules that are available in the MOOC, the students can give an immediate rating on it, just like you can go to Yelp and rate a restaurant. Mm -hmm. They can say, oh, I give this particular module two stars or five stars. All of the other students can see the average of the ratings, but they can also give immediate feedback and say what they liked, what they didn't like, what they thought the challenges were. And we can change those modules on the fly. And as a matter of fact, during our summer uh, offering, we did we did change things as, as students uh, commented and gave us feedback. I want you to, I want you to continue your, your train of thought, but I, I unfortunately want to interrupt just briefly to have you explain what your MOOC covers. What's the topic? Ah, of absolutely. MOOC? Yes, we should have done that yeah. previously. Good, good question. It's introduction to e-learning. Okay. So an, another thing that the MOOC is about is it, it's a MOOC 
about which we're teaching the content of e-learning, but also the design of it itself is a model for e-learning. So not only does the content provide information about it, but students experience it as a model for what can really be done in a powerful way with online learning. So it's like a, so it's kind of a recursive class. It's kind of a recursive <laughs> class, exactly. So we really thought it was a perfect connection of what we wanted to do from a design standpoint, but also the content that we wanted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I've been teaching and building online courses for about eight years now, and I've also uh, taken classes myself, so from the student perspective, taken online courses. Um, one thing that I find is really common in online courses is a feeling of isolation. Uh, students don't get to see their uh, co-students on a weekly basis in class. They are sitting in front of a computer screen, and they don't get to feel that. So we really try to address that primarily with the MOOCs. And one thing you can do with uh, a MOOC with, with a lot of people in it is try to bring all the students together to work together and to address that feeling of isolation. So that's one of the things we addressed heavily in the MOOC. We focused on discussions and synchronous and asynchronous sessions, getting the students together to work together so they didn't feel so alone. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Mike Menchaca and Paul Ryan about massively open online courses or MOOCs at the University of Hawaii and, of course, new ways of teaching and making teaching more uh, education more accessible to people. If you've got a comment or a question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands. We're also listening on Twitter at Hawaii and at ByteMarks. Now, uh, Mike, you know, Paul, talked about the isolation. I'll tell you, I downloaded a whole bunch of Stanford courses and got through maybe three or four lectures and then kind of stopped. And, <laughs> you know, I also signed up for Udemy and I don't, Treehouse. And I'm like, okay, self-directed learning. This is the way I'm going to learn how to program at home. And I got through four or five and then stopped. So when he talks about the isolation, I think part of it is, you know, keeping that engagement. Did, when you were teaching this first course, uh, did you lose students? Did you have a discussions about, like, where did that guy go and how do we keep people checking in and participating? Absolutely, we lost students. And, and it's important that we built a system where we could really analyze what was it that kept students, what was it that interested students, but also what was it that took students away. And I think one of the things that we've really built into the the MOOC quite a bit is the use of social media. So we used Instagram, one of our first assignments where students were required to video themselves just quickly say, where are you from? What's your favorite food? Where do you like to hang out? Uh, Not necessarily something that's hardcore content, but something that can really provide that sense of community. And so we found that providing opportunities for students to build and share community is one of the things that compels people to be together, just like in a classroom, because you're right, just sitting down and listening to a video or reading uh, a, a paper and then producing something from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not necessarily education. Education is much more complex mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, participation and, and maybe the, the fall-off rate, uh, for students that are actually enrolled in the class as, as UH Manoa students, of course, there's the incentive to get a grade and complete the course. Uh, for the person that wants to just have the opportunity do, to do like lifelong learning, what is it that you think needs to happen for them to continue the course to completion? Is, just a, is it just a personal drive for uh, lifelong learning, or is, it, is, there, is there something else that, that they need to feel compelled to finish the course? I think you ask a great question, and I, I don't think it can be just self 
um, desire. I mm-hmm. think that if we're going to do education right, we really have to provide hooks that get people interested. So some of the things are that that are that um, um, individuals that are developing these kinds of things are playing with are, are badges or certificates or competencies or skills, so that you get kind of uh, you know some indication that you you've gained this particular skill from it, or you've gotten a certificate that shows okay, I do know this particular area, and uh, in the future perhaps you know more employers will recognize these kinds of things, uh, but also the ability to get people to engage with each other, I think, is another important aspect uh, of really uh, making those successful. Now, Paul, when you're working with a class like this, and I like using Instagram or videos as a way to kind of, because there's, you know, if you were in a physical class, you'd have some time to kill. You'd talk to the person next to you, learn some things, and that certainly helps improve your the stickiness of the course. Like, I'm going to go back to that class because that guy was interesting, or that gal, that gal was kind of cute. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious for your class, what uh, was there geographic diversity? Because if you're all in the same time zone and you're talking about something that maybe is a live interaction piece, that's one thing. But a lot of MOOCs have uh, participants that aren't in the same time zone. You did mention a little about asynchronous participation. Um, what did you see in this particular actual putting in practice? We did have geographic diversity with this course. Uh, I'd say primarily the students were from Hawaii. Um, but we had some mainland students coming in as well from different institutions across the country. Um, we had synchronous sessions where people uh, came in at the exact same time. And like you said, that didn't work for everyone, people in different time zones. So a lot of the communication happened asynchronously in discussion forums where people would post and then other people could reply at any time that they wanted to. Right. Now, you know, I um – it's exciting to hear about all the opportunity for people to participate. Uh, I know that in, in the online class that I, I teach, I mean, it's, uh, it's a lot of work just for the, you know, the 15 or so students that, that take part in it. Now, as you start to open this up for a wider audience, and, and even if the, um, there's a, let's say, a, a free community that's, that's taking place, but you want to still give them some incentives to, to complete the course and maybe there's certifications or badges or some you know some incentive doesn't that take time on your part to uh you know maybe assign i mean uh, you know give the badge grade you know grade the paper you know get them to a level of completion that they've they've achieved but there's no revenue associated with that so how do you how do you uh, sort of blend the uh you have the paid students that are participating you have the free community that's that's participating um, you have only a certain limited amount of time that you can spend mm-hmm. on a given course how do you uh, feel you know as the course gets more and more popular you're, you're at 50 next semester it's 75 next semester it's 150 Correct. you know where, where do you draw I, I the line that's a great question I think one of the things that we've built into our course purposely for that is a peer review system so at the end of this course, one of the things that the students do is they produce designs about, oh, if you were to design an online learning environment, what would you do? Um, and so rather than always relying necessarily on the instructor for feedback, they can put those out for each other. And in, so there, there's a combination of formal and informal spaces, and those informal spaces allow them to uh, provide some level of interaction and feedback on their own uh, um, designs as well, in addition to getting it from the instructor. Mm-hmm, but you're right. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. Uh, we also have TAs. Those help. <laughs> well, as, as long as there's a budget for those TAs. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Oh, yeah. Well, they get credit in, in, in our program, so we don't have a budget to pay for them, but we can give, oh, them, we can g- give them credit in their master's program for it. 
all you, did you have something to add? I did. Well, the more students that are in the course, uh-huh. the more feedback that each student can potentially Correct. receive. So they're not just listening to one instructor giving them feedback. It's a much larger group now, so they can see how their work has an impact on a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking to Paul Ryan and uh, and uh, Mike Menchaka from the University of Hawaii College of Education. We're talking about massively open online courses and. If you have a comment or question and want to ask the experts, the number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome Greg from the Big Island to Bike Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Aloha, Dr. Mike. This is Greg, um, one of his students, actually, so I'm not just calling for style points. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you made that clear. takes <laughs> So, but, Greg, um, so you're, uh, you're I, I wanted to, uh, I'm in the master's program, and I've taken many courses, especially my bachelor's online, and I would just say that the interface um, was so well thought out on this particular MOOC, and, and it was comparable to course the Coursera interface, where Coursera's got, got all kinds of money, and they have a really uh, good uh, interface, attractive, intuitive in terms of design. And it's that, and I think that is what the draw is. And and if one were just to look upon it without knowing all the content, they make oh, this is just too simple. And it really so much thought that goes into it. But it's really that uh, communication that once you're able to harness that communication component, there is an asynchronous component, and that is great, especially for working students and people all over the world. And we did have somebody in, in this MOOC from Afghanistan, which was amazing, by the way. Um, but we, um, you get you harness that communicate that communicative property that makes you feel like you're right next to the person. And after you you get into that, it, the, the course is so uh, wonderful, um, and 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 the the medium is is so wonderful. So it's only going to grow by leaps and bounds. And I think Dr. Mike and the staff at uh, uh, OTech really did a bang up job on the design of that. Thank well, you, Greg. Great. Yeah, thanks, Greg. That's really great to hear. We had a lot of really talented designers and programmers working on the course. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. I mean, it sounds like you, like when you mentioned Coursera, you've used other platforms. And if you're talking about something that was homegrown, designed, and developed in Hawaii, and that knocks your sock, socks off, I, that's certainly something uh, worth celebrating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, how did how did this topic get decided upon to be the first MOOC that Manoa uh, delivered? You know, it's a good question because our department really thought about this a lot because we if you're using resources that are scary, scarce, you want to make sure that your decision uh, is a good one. So we really looked at those courses that had a lot of interest uh, and a lot of enrollment. Um, and, you know, e-learning and online learning is a very uh, um, growing, burgeoning field. So mm-hmm. we really thought, okay, let's start with this particular area that we seem to get a lot of interest in. Uh, our department has a certificate in online learning and technology that, that – uh, you don't necessarily have to get a master's or a doctorate. You can just get a certificate uh, in uh, how to be a, a good online learning uh, uh, instructor. This is also the first class in those sequence of courses as well. Uh, so it can it, it does a lot of duty. It can be a master's. Um, uh, it can be a master's elective. It can be for the certificate. It could be for the doctorate, uh, or it could be for free on your own as well. So we really wanted one that was really a, a popular course. You know what? What I what I do want to do is talk a little bit about uh, what went into the design of this course because Greg did, uh, of course, highlight the fact that it was a beautiful design. Want to hold that thought though? We want to. We'll take a quick break here. 
and continue our conversation with Mike Menchaca and Paul Ryan about MOOCs. And how do students interact with each other? How do you assess their performance? How do you scale? Of course, we'd love to hear from you as well. You can call 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. You are listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Taking the road less traveled, the multi-talented jazz combo led by vocalist Rachel Gonzalez and pianist Les Peets give you their fresh take on standards, 60s pop, folk songs, and more. Find tickets for their Saturday, December 6th Atherton Studio Concert at hbrtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. That's Saturday, December 6th at 7.30 in the Atherton for standards and other delights. For Thanksgiving week, American Roots celebrates the 2014 National Heritage Fellows live in concert with music from the Holmes Brothers from Christchurch, Virginia to Austin's Cowboy Donnelly, plus tunes from Fellows Gone By, Doc Watson, the Staple Singers, Treme Brass Band, and more. I'm Nick Spitzer. Join me for American Roots from PRX. Sunday at 8 p.m. following a Prairie Home Companion. Welcome back. This is Mike Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Mike Menchaka and Paul Ryan about the future of massively open online courses. And of course, uh, we'd like to know what courses are more suitable to MOOC delivery. And you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we want to welcome Roger from Haleiwa to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. Sure. Great to see you guys. Appreciate it. Um, so I had a question about uh, assessment tools that are available once you've taken MOOCs or to evaluate, you know, what kind of courses you should be taking, what level. Are we at that stage or are we still kind of developing the, the models? Okay, great question, Roger. Uh, Mike, uh, w- what do you think of that, assessments of these uh, the MOOC courses? Yeah, we've built into this particular one the ability for students to build their designs in WordPress, which uh, Paul will talk a little bit about more of the development in, in a second. Uh, but those uh, artifacts exist on the system, and we can assess them. So we do have a, a, a very a high level of assessment. So not only is there peer review, which I mentioned earlier, but there's also instructor review. Well, uh, you're talking the about designs. the you're talking about the exercises or the uh, designs right, that people right, come right. up with. But For what evaluation. About the, what about the course? Oh, the assessment of the course. Ah, yes. There's quite a lot built into this. Um, we we use a system called XAPI, which is Experience API. So there's there's ability to get massive amounts of information from our server Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and then feedback from our students to evaluate the course. And then, of course, we have course evaluations as well. Now, is that something that gets, um, let's say, put up so public the public can review or look at what the assessment of the not, course. Not necessarily. Yeah, it's something that's that's mostly as analysts for for research and, and assessment purposes. But maybe I should turn over to Paul because he probably could speak to some of the more well uh, technical aspects of that. Well, I think the another element of the caller's question that I certainly identify with is. Uh, I want to take an online course, but I don't know. Am I at 201? Mm-hmm. Am I at 301? Ah, I That's see. what I would want to assess. Like, am I ready for this course or should I start somewhere else? Mm. So uh, on, on the horizon in the research community, in education, there's something called competency-based learning. And Mike can probably speak to in, in more detail about this than I can. But it, it addresses that very issue of students wanting to know at what skill level they are, what can they test out of, 
what do they still need to learn? And instead of just jumping into a course as a whole, they can drill down to smaller subject matter to figure out what they need work on. Yeah, I mean, yeah. when I was trying to learn programming, I still am. I say I am. But, you know, you download the Stanford course. I'm like, all right, I'm, on, I'm, I'm into this. And I'm like, I have no idea what this guy is talking about. So I had right. to find, like, you know, programming for complete and total morons. And that's where I needed to start. So I can see that challenge, Mike. Yeah, I think that um, uh, the one that we did in particular is at an introductory level. So we really wanted to make it sh sure that if it was the first experience for people, that it was appropriate at, at many different levels. Uh, but having competen the competency-based movement is something that's really growing uh, in the education community. And so ability to have these artifacts but also to associate with them the, the, the specific skills that the students are getting so that, that whether it's badges or some other form of certificate so that, that they can go to another course and say, hey, look, here's my uh, potential pool of skills. Does this match appropriately? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's something that's that – I, I agree with the caller. It's still something that's under development, something that we're working on. Uh, MOOCs are new. But definitely if if it's going to grow uh, as a movement, we have to understand. What's, and, and what's, um, I wouldn't say misleading, but the, the, the thing that would – First, I would first look at is the 600 level course assignment, right? So it's a, it's a, basically a graduate course. If I would were to just look at the numbering, um, and if if you were to let's say take a course uh, like at a community college that is 100 level or 200 level, then you know that it's, it's an introductory class. So when you say that this MOOC is kind of introductory, it's a little misleading because it is a 600 level class, right? And so there's a little there's a postgraduate sort of expectation of delivery. Yeah, I think that it's a combination of, of how you view the consumption of the course. So uh, if for students that are enrolled in the four credit portion of the course at the 600 level, uh, we can provide a certain palette of experiences to them that differentiates what they're doing from other students that may just take it as as a MOOC, which mm -hmm. is fine. Uh, so the material itself, I don't think, is overly complex, but uh, understanding, uh, manipulating, designing those kinds of things definitely. So it, it 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 does appeal to various levels. But you're correct in terms of the four credit students. It, it is a it is a graduate Super. level course. I, I can imagine. I mean, my wife and daughter are both using Duolingo to learn foreign languages. They're talking to themselves late into the night, and I can imagine one day when there's MOOCs at various universities. You say, oh, I want to take this French class. What's your Duolingo score? Like, oh, it's 1,800. You're good. You're ready for this class. <laughs> uh, now, Paul, before the break, uh, one of the students in this course was just enraptured with the design. And I have to tell you, I've tried various online learning um, environments. The university has at, at Hawaii. I, I worked with one that's not my favorite, for example. So why was what you designed so awesome? I mean, where did you start that other people hadn't started? So we have a, a team of individuals in the College of Education we're uh, collectively known as DCDC. It's Distance Course Design and Consulting. And what we do is we service the rest of the, the university and build online courses for people. We run on a contract basis. And so what we are allowed to do huh. is spend a lot of time on instructional design and actual visual design for the courses. And so I feel like the output of the online courses that we create is at a, a different level than just a single instructor trying to do it all mm -hmm. by themselves. So when this course was developed, uh, could you give me a sense of the time frame between 
when Mike had the idea to, to you know, develop this course and you getting the task of developing sort of the online experience? Yeah, yeah. So we, it was probably about a six-month project with about two to three people working on it uh, almost full-time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from, yeah, original conception of the idea to first teaching the course was about six months. And it was first taught in the summer. And since then, we have uh, modified the course a little bit based on feedback that we received from the first semester. Well, one of the things that Connor talked about is the design. And I'm also curious about the platform. Like, uh, is, is is it a modified IRC chat room? Is it a web yeah. message board? You know, it, maybe I'm thinking old too in, in too many old concepts, but I'm trying to wrap my mind around what does this online course classroom, in quotes, look like. Okay. So interestingly enough, we did use an IRC chat room for the course, but no no students really used it. So we, uh, we're dropping it for the ah, next okay, round. Okay. But the course itself is built on top of WordPress. Mm-hmm. So we use WordPress as a platform for most of the courses we build. And we do that because, one, it has a, a design sense to it that a lot of the other uh, CMSs on the market don't have. And two, it's really easy for instructors to go in and, and modify. And we've spent a lot of time trying to streamline that process. So instructors can feel uh, connected to their course and change content whenever they feel like it. And hopefully that translates then onto the students feeling comfortable on the courses as well. A lot of people think of WordPress as a blog, and you might have a Mm multi-user blog, but I'm having a hard time seeing how that's like a courseware or a groupware environment. There's not secret sauce or some plugins that you're not telling us about that would allow you to do this? There, there's a little bit of secret sauce. Ah. We've, we've developed some themes and plugins on our own uh, in DCDC. So we have authentication plugins that let students come in via Google, their Google accounts or through their UH accounts. So that's how they authenticate with the course. And we know who they are. They get to have pictures associated with their accounts and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and then, yeah, at its core, WordPress is a content management system, which a blog is then built on top of that. Right, but you right. can steer it away and do other things besides just plain blogging. Mm-hmm. Now, when the students in the class had to design or develop their designs as a result of their taking the course, uh, was the uh, the WordPress platform still something that they could continue to use to develop their designs? It was, and this was one of the really cool things about this course. It was the first time that we had invited students themselves to use WordPress as a content management system. Typically, we restrict that to just the instructors and the instructional designers on the back end modifying content. But for this course, we opened it up so students contributed content themselves and mm-hmm. worked with the, the WordPress backend. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Paul Ryan and Mike uh, about the multiply massively open online courses, or MOOCs, I should just say MOOCs, and it's a deployment at the University of Hawaii. If you have a comment or question, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, I mentioned Duolingo, and it's kind of a gamified language learning system. Uh, uh, We have a Twitter comment. Wayne from Los Angeles said, regarding keeping the attention of students, I'm a fan of Cat Spanish. It uses pictures of cats to illustrate concepts. It's silly but sticky. Cat Academy and Cat Spanish. So you mentioned Instagram. What other clever things have you thought of or have you deployed to keep things really interesting or even fun in a MOOC? No, that's a good question. We did use Twitter quite a bit uh, in the course as well so that we could come up with uh, uh, quick things that we could put and share. Uh, Infographics are really popular things now, so Mm -hmm. we we, uh, use some of the really cool infographics that are out there. No lol cats? 
no, no, LOL cats. No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't use LOL cats or Grumpy Cat. I think that's another one that's really popular at the moment. Uh, but definitely, you want to harness that energy uh, that students have to use some of the newer tools. And so, it was something that we uh, definitely thought about during the design and deployment of of the of the MOOC. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you, you talked about Paul about the sort of authentication of users coming in. You have the students. You have uh, the the community of free free users uh, was there uh, was that an attempt to try to perhaps uh, remove the possibility of of of, some trolls? of the trolls <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah trolls who yes, might just was. come yeah. in and and just disrupt you know the course delivery right so that's always a threat uh, with online education and especially uh, with students who uh, their data is personal data and private data, and you don't want to just expose it to the world at large. So we wanted to make sure that the students had some expectation of privacy uh, and a smaller community that, that they were addressing to. And when not, when the content they were creating was exposed to the world, they knew that. Um, but then they wouldn't have to deal with an onslaught of YouTube comments from the world coming back mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. The commenting features were restricted to the people enrolled in the course. Mm-hmm. Now, was one of the... Um one of the requirements that you said they had to use WordPress. So, as a prerequisite, was WordPress a requirement to take the class? Uh, well, they when they registered for the class, they were told what it was that we would be using, and they were also told told that um, there was Creative Commons licensing for everything. So, it wasn't necessarily that they had to have WordPress, but they knew that the content that they were going to develop would become public and that it would have uh, a Creative Commons license associated with it so that other people would be seeing the content that mm-hmm. they created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We want to uh, invite Tim from Kaneohe to join us on Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So uh, my question is uh, relating to, uh, you know, developing this from the university relative to the private sector. A uh, couple questions come to mind. Um, who owns the content when it's finished? And uh, relative to, uh, uh, let's say, private sector development of, of such of such things, distance learning courses, um, how is the university that much more positioned to do it better than, or, uh, than uh, let's say, uh, private private industry? Excellent questions, I think. Thank you very much for your call. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned um, Creative Commons. That's one aspect of the ownership of the content in the class. But maybe is there an element of ownership of the work that's done? If somebody said, I want to use your WordPress secret sauce, I mean, how does that work? It's all open content. So we design it purposely to be open. I think that was one of the things that Paul mentioned earlier was giving back to the community. It is a public institution. So we felt that uh, if we were going to do this, that we wanted it to be uh, open educational resources so that the content mm-hmm. that I develop can be freely distributed, can be utilized, can be put out there by anyone. I don't have any uh, concern with that. So there, there isn't necessarily ownership uh, of the content other than, uh, you know, giving uh, credit to uh, where you got the content from, which, w- which is, you know, w- would be the, the various um, groups that, uh, that put it together. Mm-hmm. Now, Paul, and, the caller also mentioned why a university versus a business trying to do this sort of thing. I mean, what is the specific qualifications or reason why UH has, has made this a project? Now, that's a tough one to answer. Um, I, I want to echo Mike's uh, Dependence on open educational resources here. Uh, we didn't 
require students to buy a textbook for this course. Mm -hmm. And so we relied on a lot of other content that was submitted by other people that was also openly licensed, similar to the way we're doing this course. And I suppose uh, from a private sector perspective, it might be a little different in that they have content that shouldn't be public knowledge and they don't want to release it publicly as much as, as we would for a course like this. So there may be a little bit of a disconnect there. Mm-hmm. Tim, did you have a, a follow-up question? Yeah, just really quickly. I, I know you guys are coming to the end of this. Um, okay, let's say I am a, uh, somehow making uh, developing the content with you, and uh, I get paid for uh, what I think is one-time use. But then the university uh, offers courses in this. They get tuition from it. They make money from it on an ongoing basis. How is that fair for the authors? Well, it depends on the author. So uh, there is a contract that is associated with it, and you're you're, uh, able to decide at what level that you're comfortable with uh, distributing your own content and intellectual property. So it's something that is really important to us. So as an instructor, if you were not... Uh, c- uh, comfortable with doing anything than a one-off, perhaps, you know, like, okay, we're going to do this one time, uh, and that's all that I- I'm comfortable with sharing my information. That can be part of the contractual obligation that you engage with with uh, uh, the distance court, uh, with whatever entity is doing the development of it. In my particular case, I didn't have any problem at all with giving up my intellectual property. It was something that I felt was important for this particular um, um, usage. But it's perfectly reasonable that you might say, well, I've got some awesome curriculum ideas, some great models that I want to deploy, absolutely. but I don't want to give it away. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's something as an author that you can uh, that you can decide. I mean, that, mm-hmm. at the university, that's something that's very important to faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's right. actually it's a really important question to understand uh, that, that we're not requiring everybody to, to give, give up their intellectual right, yeah, property right. in order to do this. It's something that you have to be comfortable with, with before you become involved at that level. Right, and right. Then- and- as a, as a research institution, Mike can also publish on the content of this course and the work that he's put into it. So there are other paybacks mm-hmm, um, that he mm-hmm. can get out of this. Correct. Great, great. So where can people find out more information about the MOOCs that you guys are putting out there and, and of course, uh, the future courses that you might be developing? Absolutely. If you're uh, interested in finding out more about the course, there is a shortened URL. You can go to um, tinyurl.com slash L-T-E-C-612. So that's T-I-N-Y-U-R-L dot com slash LTEC612. And that'll take you to our registration page. There's a little video where we talk about uh, the course. You can sign up for it to uh, take it at a later time if you're so interested uh, in checking it out. So you can can find all that you need uh, uh, at that location. And we'll have the link on our site at bitemarkscafe.org. Thank you. I'm looking forward to more MOOCs. Well, Mike Menchaca is uh, an uh, associate professor in the Department of Educational Technology over at UH Manoa. And Paul Ryan is the technology lead for the College of Engineering, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll get an update from the Office of Information Management and Technology with the state's technology transformation plan. Yes, sir. And of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Or, of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at Bite Marks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Pond and a song called Psychedelic Mango Vision. 
<laughs> Have a great Thanksgiving and see you next Happy week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.